this morning as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, I want us to focus more on not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? It's really a good idea for a rubber bracelet. I don't know. W-D-J-D. Well, Jesus and the Twelve just... If I can put it this way, finish up another campaign, if you will, thinking of like kind of like a Billy Graham crusade sort of thing. And they finish it up bringing the only hope of lasting peace and honest to goodness, ultimate contentment that exists for mankind. After teaching the crowd many things, the text told us this is old material. Well, what kind of things did Jesus spend teaching them throughout the day? The text doesn't say. But maybe the Apostle Peter can help us out when he writes in 2 Peter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So as I said, Jesus spent the day and even went into the night addressing the crowd's real needs rather than the crowd's felt needs as they're sometimes referred to today or from addressing the crowd's perceived needs, meaning what they think their needs were and why they were there. And based on what we've studied already in this gospel, it is fair to say that the multitudes were there first and foremost to have their quality of life improved. In other words, they were there first and foremost to have their comfort level increased. They wanted their blind to see, we're told. They wanted their deaf to hear. They wanted their leprous to be cleansed. The multitudes were there to be made stronger. They were there to be made healthier. They were there to be made more mobile. And even in some cases, they were there to have their dead raised up again. But even in these remarkable instances where the healings in fact took place and the dead were raised to life, they all only ever died again. Boy, you sure know how to put a wet blanket on something. When God walked the earth to deal with the sinfulness of mankind, He was keenly aware of our real needs, as well as our felt needs, or as our, we sometimes put it again, our perceived needs. And Mark tells us that in light of that, Jesus was filled with compassion. Jesus knows who we all are and where we are, even better than we do. And he is filled with compassion for each one of us. And after the crowds had listened to the creator of the universe, that is, who is standing in front of them, after they listened to him for hours on end, expound on the issues of life they all needed to hear, and it had been a long day, he understood the pain of their hunger. And so he miraculously feeds the multitudes, all who had been with him in the day and into the evening, being tutored on the real purpose and the real meaning of life. My life verse, Matthew 6.33, sums it all up. Seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else 
will be added unto you. For now, this gospel campaign is over. And Jesus sends his disciples back into the little boat that they came in the first time to return back across the sea. Only this time, instead of going with them as he did coming, Jesus sends them off alone. And Jesus is going to remain behind this time to dismiss the masses so that unlike the last time, they will not be greeted, hopefully, by the pressing and endless need of the crowds waiting for them when they arrive. And so the crowds are dismissed. And what did Jesus do? Well, remember, he is the God of the heavens and earth. He truly is the Superman who never sleeps nor slumbers. Oh, but wait, that's right. He's fully God, and that's that whole God stuff. But he's also fully human while yet being God. And even as our Superman, if I could put it so crassly, Jesus needs rest. And so he retreats to the mountains to be alone with his heavenly Father in prayer. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us in chapter 4? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted or tested in all things as we are. With one big exception, he did it without sin. It's easy to forget that Jesus knows what it's like to face the challenges of our world better than we do. I think we routinely diminish the importance of that because we say to ourselves, well, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, but he's God after all. But even God come in the flesh needed downtime. Even God, in human form, needed time with His heavenly Father. And I just have to ask this morning, do we, do we take time throughout the week to be with our heavenly Father? And I don't want you to get all formal now in this. Just in case the first thing that comes to your mind is, you know, okay, here comes the drive-by guilting. No, no drive-by guilting. I can't set aside time. I can't get up early enough in the morning. I mean, my day's scheduled out. I got kids here. I'm playing taxi all day long. This and that. I'm working long hours into the day. I, I can't do that. I'm not talking about something formal necessarily. When I say formal, I mean a secluded time where you, you go off by yourself and you sit down and maybe into a, a, your study. <laughs> you have the luxury of a study and be alone with Jesus. No, I'm talking about even in the midst of the hectic daytime routines that we all have different but we all have one and it can be as simple as turning the radio off in the car when you're driving from point a to point b and making it an express time not even so much as to talk but to listen to god you can do it when you're ironing i know i do it You do the ironing? Yes, I do. I do my ironing. Not because Barb wouldn't, but because I'm a little particular. Thank you, United States Army. Now watch, as soon as I get out here, you're all going to be looking at his clothes going, well, you need some remedial training there, pal. Hey. You can be alone 
even while not necessarily being all alone. And if it was good enough for Jesus, I think it's a necessity for each one of us. Well, at any rate, the twelve are sent off in the boat, and they're out on the sea. This is still review. And they have this harrowing experience with God who made the waves which he is walking upon. Jesus comes strolling up to them, they in the boat, Jesus, the original wave rider, standing on the waves that he creates. And so we pick up this morning in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53, which is going to end this particular scene that we've been in for the past several weeks concerning the life and times of Jesus and the twelve. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus, and they ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick. Remember what I said just a few minutes ago. And they gathered around, and they carried here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered, villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it, were being cured. Is it not telltale that we never read about the multitudes flocking to Jesus to be forgiven of their sins? And perhaps that is a big point of why Mark is ending this particular scene so abruptly. Chapter 7 begins now a new vignette, if you will. And we're introduced, well, actually we're not introduced. We met them previously, but another group of people, unlike the group that Jesus was just with. This group is now significantly different from the multitudes in chapter 6. They were lost, to be sure. And Jesus likens those in chapter 6 to sheep without a shepherd, and so he had compassion on them. But what a difference now we see of the Savior concerning this next group of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are also lost, but their lostness is of an entire different quality. We already know this group. We met them in chapter 2 and 3. They were the ones who were disturbed chronically. They were disturbed that the disciples were not fasting. They were disturbed that Jesus and the disciples were eating with their lesser tiers of society, those considered by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to not be of quite the status that they were. They were disturbed with Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. And now Mark gives us another snapshot of who they are. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, we are told parenthetically by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Mark for our benefit, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. 
and when they come from the marketplace. They don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots and blah, 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 yada, yada. Of all the groups of people that Jesus encounters, he is always the most patient with those who are oblivious, ignorant, desperate, and needy. Those are the ones he is most patient with. The type of people Jesus has no patience with are those who think they have it all together. Are those who are certain that they know it all. Those who exude this attitude of superiority to everybody else and those who pervert the truth of who God is. The God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. You cannot have two out of the three and be right. It is all or nothing. And Jesus quite is quite intolerant of straying to any kind of alternative. And yet the picture most often given is of Jesus who is always compassionate, unqualifyingly accepting, and gently correcting. It is a caricature of the real Jesus that we're going to see. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, a popular view, even in a church that is thinking evangelistically, a popular view with the church that really focuses on, and I hope this describes us, on evangelism, meaning just looking for those opportunities to tell people more about the Lord, probably see this initially and go, aha, see, here, Jesus has a great opportunity to give a lesson to these know-it-alls in good theology, correcting some bad theology. So in light of that, I'm going to take note because obviously, given the caricature, what I'm expecting is that he will take pains to sensitively correct, instruct, and encourage. (laughs) All right, let me just change this up for, for a little bit. Let me take some liberties here okay, to just kind of personalize this. And plus to remove, try and remove some of the bias of this whole preconceived idea, picture we have of this caricatured Jesus. Let's forget for the moment that it's Jesus who is involved here and put ourselves in a similar picture instead as the one who now has this opportunity. You could be at work, you could be at school, you could be in an airplane, you might be at the airport waiting on your flight that was canceled might be talking over the fence to a neighbor or any number of other scenarios. So there you are, there I am, and I have someone who is inquiring. Believe it or not, they're inquiring about religious things. And they come out with a question about a particular point of religious belief. In this case, it seems that they are asking for clarification about the law of Moses. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, basically, their question pertains to the writings of Moses, which are the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So their question all stems from whatever theology is bound up in those five books. 
And so I'm excited. You're excited that they're asking the questions. So this is an open door by which I can help them draw closer to the living God. That's our heart. That's our attitude. That's that's we're just we're we're excited about it, even though we're a little reluctant to go forth on, of all things, the Old Testament. So you let them fire away. And they throw their questions out there and you make several attempts along the way when they kind of come up for air and take a breath. And it seems like they're pausing or maybe they even pause like they're waiting for an answer. And so you start to answer them, but they continuously, incessantly interrupt you. And so because we don't want to blow this opportunity We close our mouths again and we patiently listen to them some more. Throw out more questions, throw out more, whatever it is. Because we know it's a good opportunity, it's a big opportunity. And we don't want to come off as harsh. We don't want to come off as as know-it-alls. And so we continue to listen. But the longer, the longer you listen, and the more patient you are, the more intense this now monologue, as it's become, grows. And what I thought, what you thought was a real question, begins to sound more like an indictment. And that's because it is. Let's go back to the text. It's not because Jesus has supernatural intuition here that he can cut through their fake interest in the truth. It is because Jesus knows their heart and Jesus knows their motives and their heart and their motives because he knows their beliefs and he knows their lifestyle and their practices and their arrogance all of which factor into how Jesus cuts through their facade of honest inquiry. You see, their question never was about wanting to know the truth. I think, I'm not positive, I couldn't verify it, but I think it was the late theologian G.K. Chesterton who said, God never minds the honest doubter. It's the dishonest doubter that he minds. Their question was an attempt to show the masses. Remember now, they're gathered around. It's not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they're amidst a crowd of all varieties and stripes. And so their question was an attempt to show the masses that Jesus was a fraud and that they were the ones who were right. They were the ones that the people should be following. So let's listen in as we hear the always compassionate, unqualifyingly accepting, and gently correcting Jesus at work, fielding questions from religious experts of the day. Remember again, verse 5, they ask, Why are your disciples not walking according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Based on our bias of preconceived ideas about Jesus, we might expect him to answer something like this. And Jesus says to them, well, 
golly gee willikers, uh, it's really neat that you're so observant of such things. But uh, you see, as, as monumental as you're making it, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that big of an issue. It's just, it's just not really the main thing. But golly, you know what? Your hearts are in the right place, and you're wanting to watch walk in such awesome, meticulous holiness. And, and God's just really so thrilled that you're here inquiring, blah, 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 blah. blah. No, that's not what Jesus says at all. It's not even the manner in which he approaches and answers them. Jesus said to them in chapter 7, verses 6 through 13, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's in Isaiah 29, 13. You can read that. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Doink! Remember, this is in public with everybody listening and watching. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But what do you say? If a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many, you do many such things as that. The whole idea of Korban, I know we don't understand that. What they did was, is, is they knew the commandment said they're supposed to financially take care of their mother and father as a way of honoring them. And when mom and dad had a real need and they came to them, they said, oh, oh, oh it pains me, mommy and daddy. I'd so love to help you out, but boy, the excess that I do have that I would have been glad to help you out with has already been devoted to God, so sorry. Oh, yeah, it was a nice pseudo-holy way of sidestepping the intent of God's commands. And Jesus says, and many such things you do like that. Well, I'm assuming that you've heard the expression, you'll attract more flies with honey than vinegar. And yet, Jesus comes out of the gate throwing vinegar right into their spiritually blinded eyes. Jesus wasn't about to have his father's mission co-opted by some unteachable, uncorrectable pseudo-experts whose purpose in life was to go around finding fault, correcting everyone else to their version of the truth. Now, one of faith's plumb lines, talked about those a few weeks ago, Number eight of our plumb lines is that we seek to make disciples more than tallying mere decisions. So let me bring this closer to home. I want to talk about a common occurrence, real common to us, although it had been a long time since we had such an occurrence, but it happened relatively frequently. And let's say it's Saturday morning, always at the most inopportune time as it could possibly be, and you hear at your door. 
Well, <clears throat> you're wondering who in the world, you know, would I, and, you know, you're in your whatever it is that you're in, lounging around on Saturday morning early, fairly early. You know, it's either a bottle drive, or it's the next door neighbor Cub Scout selling popcorn or some such thing, or it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. If it's the afternoon, it's the Mormons. Well, for a number of years when we were in Atlanta and I was studying the Bible as a lay person, I was extremely motivated but naive. And so I rather enjoyed tangling it up with the local cult members that would stop by for a chat. But after numerous encounters and experiencing their tactic of sending me up the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, if you want to call it managerial or leadership food chain, I started to question the appropriateness of my spending several hours over multiple visits trying, thinking that I was making any kind of headway at all to convert them to the Christ of the Scriptures. You see, I had to realize that I was not witnessing to people in search of God's answers for life or in search of the biblical Savior. I was defending the Bible to schooled, trained, pseudo-experts in religion who were not there for answers at all, but were trying to convince me that I needed their variety of biblical truth. And so I intentionally made my encounters less and less frequent. It is noteworthy, I think, for us to underscore that Jesus did, in fact, have a temper. That Jesus did, in fact, grow weary and impatient with the dishonest doubters of his day. And he never hesitated to rip away the holy facade of those who were making converts to a faith that would, in fact, based on other scriptures in the Gospels, take them to hell. Now, that being judgmental, by now being unloving, many would say so, many do say so, But let's again go listen in on the master communicator who never gets it wrong. I'm going to go to Matthew 23. And first I need to give you the setup, meaning the context that we're going to look at from Matthew 23 that comes in the first couple of verses. Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. So again, Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a mixed bag of people from all walks of life, all places of of faith on different stages of their spiritual pilgrimage. And Jesus spoke to the crowds saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Wait a minute. Wait. Okay. You, You pulled the rug out from me there. You're just blasting through Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but now you're telling me that Jesus is telling them they need to listen to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's read it a little more carefully. 
The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe. Meaning, while they are there expounding the Pentateuch, expounding, no, I'm even misstating that. Not expounding, meaning explaining, but reading as they did as a matter of course of their worship of reading the law of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Listen to them. They are reading the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. When they're reading from the Torah, in spite of who they are, in spite of their motives, in spite of their pathetic and wildly hypocritical lifestyles, do what they are saying. They are reading from the Bible. But then he adds... But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. And then Matthew's going to go on and he's going to elaborate on how they pervert the Bible for their own purposes. What follows in verses 13 to 17 is neither patient, gentle, subtle, or intending to change their minds. Matthew 23, 13 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Not just condemnation, but a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one conversion, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much, twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is then obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? The Pharisees as a group were never, ever looking for truth. They were always striving for position, striving for control, striving to convince. But, put that on the shelf now. The scriptures, then, include an account of another on the door. It comes from the Gospel of John. Who is it? Lion chart. No, I mean... uh, Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. A Pharisee. It is. It's a Pharisee. It's another Pharisee named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, all right, but he's different. And John tells us about him. Let's look at it. John 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You see, John wants to be sure that we know right off the bat that this is a real, honest-to-goodness Pharisee in all that that means. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The language Nicodemus uses here is, honestly, is not compelling. It's not convincing as to his sincerity or not. 
And the reason I say that is that it's very similar to other language used elsewhere in the encounters with the Pharisees that Jesus has, where the exchange goes more like the one Mark just previously had. So just hearing that, I'm not using to say this Nicodemus was Jesus. I'm saying we really don't know yet. Well, so what can we glean from that text about this Pharisee that was different? That Jesus patiently answers his questions instead of blowing him right out of the water. First of all, it was night. And he was alone. Why was it night did he, that he came and why was he alone? It was because he didn't want to be seen by his peers, by his group, which was who? The Pharisees. And why is that? Because he comes to the Savior looking for answers. He wasn't looking to indict the man who was stealing the show and cutting into their territory. Nicodemus is that honest doubter. The text says, Jesus answered and said to him. Okay, wait a minute. Wait, Jesus answered him. But Nicodemus hasn't asked a question. The text, in the way that it words it, made a statement. He hasn't even asked the question yet. But Jesus yet nevertheless answers him. What do we make of that? It was dark. There were no crowds to impress. Nothing to gain for him except truth. Jesus knows who the Pharisees are. He knows their beliefs and their lifestyles. And right off the bat, just from this little bit, this Pharisee does not fit the profile of the group. There's only one reason Nicodemus Nicodemus would be coming to Jesus alone in the night, and that is to find out the truth. And so Jesus cuts to the chase and says, even though he hasn't asked a question yet, Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is at issue here? Nicodemus is inquiring. I want to see the kingdom of God. Right there, the conversation would have changed tone if Nicodemus had come with his peers. The peers would have been protesting. Don't you school us on the kingdom of God. We're the gatekeepers after all. Nicodemus said to him, and actually now he does ask a question, not of indictment, but of clarification. How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now the conversation, in fact, does become monologue. It becomes one-sided. Not with Nicodemus, throwing out whatever, but now with Jesus laying out the good news. For in this passage is the lengthy passage where John 3.16, among so many well-memorized, well-known passages, lies. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish. Nicodemus listens in silence. Now, isn't it interesting? That means, yes, of course it is, Pastor. That Jesus doesn't land the plane, so to speak, as we might say. He doesn't close the deal by insisting that Nicodemus recite some manufactured prayer to receive Jesus. That means dramatic pause with emphasis. The bouncing pastor. Four chapters later, the Pharisees, now as a group, are out with the crowds and they are angrier than ever and they want to seize Jesus. And they are seething angry because they had ordered the temple guards to go seize Jesus and the temple guards didn't do it. It seems that the temple guards were also very intrigued by this Jesus, by his comportment and by his compelling answers. So the tension mounts. Another Pharisee in the midst speaks up, bringing a legal technicality about their intent to arrest Jesus, which seems quite reasonable, seeing as how the Pharisees prided themselves on meticulous attention to detail when it comes to all things legal. But in this case, they were conveniently overlooking that. And the Pharisee who raises the reasonable question is Nicodemus. And yet, we still don't know if Nicodemus is a Christ follower. But even his legitimate question of due process is met with hostility by those of whom he was a part. But now by the next time we hear of Nicodemus, it's all the way up toward the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 19. Jesus has already been crucified Jesus is dead. We pick up in John 19, verses 38 through 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus who had first come to Jesus by night, was also there. And why was he there? He was there because he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight, to give this Jesus proper burial. Nicodemus, I fully expect to see in heaven. Let me bring it back again now as we wrap this up to some pointed application. Let me balance out. There's always such brevity in my sermons and all that things get blown way out of proportion on Facebook and everything else. So let me try and clarify. Don't just reflexively slam the door in the faces of your neighborhood cultists. But also, don't even let them get started with their deluded perversion of truth. You take control of the conversation immediately. And don't be 
overly worried about what you're going to say. For in that day, the Holy Spirit will give you utterance. Yes, I've taken that out of context. Yes, it may not apply. But yes, it may apply. Take it or leave it. You may say something like this. And this is not to be memorized. This I'm trying to give you a feel to balance this out. I am a follower of the Jesus in the Bible who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you would like to know this Jesus, not your Jesus, but this Jesus, we can talk. Or come back when you're ready to listen to words of truth and life. I know what you believe, which implies that you know what they believe. (laughs) So, do whatever you got to do there. And I implore you to turn from it in Jesus' name. Once I got to what I think was the highest rung with the Jehovah's Witnesses in Atlanta, because that's what they do. They bring back the person who couldn't answer the, you know, the, the previous people couldn't answer your questions. And when you get there, then they bring the next one and they, you know, and real, and again, none of it was inquiring to, to find out what the Bible says. They're coming was always to tell me where and how and why I am wrong and they are right. Don't waste your breath. Jesus didn't. And if you have to, let the Spirit be your guide. Throw a little vinegar in their eyes. That's, it's a picture. It's not literal, okay? then do so. Or just don't open the door. All right. I don't remember if I have a prayer this morning. I do not. Let's pray. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, whatever has been improperly taught this morning, Please expunge it from the minds and the memories of the people here. I'm simply, Lord, trying to look and watch and see what you did and gain wisdom by it. And investing time into people who are searching, Lord, And they might not even know what they're searching for, but they're searching. And those people, Lord, you would spend the day with or more. Those who just wanted to come to indict you, to accuse you, to convert those listening to their brand of falsehood. Lord, you had no patience and no time. Help us to learn from you and to walk in your steps with your winsomeness. In Jesus' name, amen.